It's another blessed opportunity that we've been allowed to gather, to assemble in the way that we are this Sunday afternoon. In fact, as we come together and assemble in these ways, we're always thankful that we have the privilege of directing our attention to the things taught in the Word of God, encouraged in the element of our faith, and certainly doing those things in a way that can be a great benefit in our service in every way to the kingdom of God. It certainly is true, as you may have noted in the bulletin, that we come to another installment of our questions and answers this evening. There were some who asked me right before the services how many questions there are, and they were rather disappointed. There's only one. One question tonight. That doesn't mean it's a three-minute sermon, though. <laughs> so, let me put your mind at ease, at least in connection to that thought, because it does seem to be a rather lengthy answer, at least the way I put it together. You might have put it together much shorter than I, but at least I would invite us to give some thought to this one question of the night. As always, these questions and answers are things prompted by, by inquiries that you have made. So as you put questions in that box in the foyer or perhaps ask them of me directly, always happy to take note of them, include them in some of our questions and answers. In fact, in this calendar year, we have but one remaining. We'll use the last Sunday night in the month of December for that, if it be the will of God. So if you have questions along that line, please share them with me and we'll see if we can take care of them. I think I've already got two that's been shared with me for that particular night and we'll look forward to sharing them and even others if others are shared by that time. The question this evening reads as follows. I always thought that Jesus died on Friday. Most people also think that Jesus died on Friday because of the Bible references to His body not remaining on the cross on the Sabbath according to John 19.31. You said in a recent sermon that Jesus died on Thursday. Would you discuss this more thoroughly in a sermon? And that's going to be the thrust of tonight's lesson. That is to say, I did make that statement in a recent lesson, and I think also in a Bible study, if memory serves me correctly. And so it would be at least a fair thing to notice, what might we say? about using the Word of God and any thoughts relative to being rather specific about what day of the week it was on which our Savior died. We'll begin by noting somewhat about the crucifixion. We know that that's a central theme in all the Bible. The recognition, just as we prayed, that Jesus died for our sins. And as He did that, what a momentous event it was. However, as you step through some of the matters on that slide, we're going to make a rather dramatic point in just a moment. We might well begin by noting, certainly isn't it true, that Jesus celebrated the Passover with His apostles. And He did that according just as the way in which the Old Testament had set forward for that to be done. In Numbers chapter 9, verse 3, we highlight, among other places, an Old Testament prophecy and statement about the way in which that Passover was to be observed. But in addition to that, as we come to the New Testament, in Matthew 26, we noted there Jesus did in fact assemble with them in that upper room, and He kept that Passover observance just as had been done for approximately 1,500 years, at least by command of the God of heaven. But you'll notice something is said in Luke's version of this. In Luke 22, verses 8 and following, it is there said that it was at even that this took place. Now, as you and I remember, by the way that the Jews, and the Hebrews at least at large, described their days, that's not that surprising. Remember, they began the count of their day in the evening. Now, you and I begin it at midnight. They began it at sundown. So once the sun sets, 
for them, you started a new day. Now that, of course, can have an interesting bearing on some thoughts about the correct interpretation of various time or chronological references in the New Testament. But going back to that slide with me, you and I know that at least in the spring season of the year in Palestine, we'd probably be talking about 7.30 p.m., somewhere along in there, would have been thus the beginning of that new day for them, and that would have been that particular time wherein the Passover would have been observed. But beyond that, you and I remember it was at that same interesting event where the Lord established what we call the Lord's Supper. And we also remember it was at that time that shortly thereafter, after the Lord had gone out to the Garden of Gethsemane, He was arrested. Judas came and planted the betrayal kiss upon Him. And you and I remember He came with a band of officers and soldiers and they arrested our Lord as a common criminal. Furthermore, on that slide, isn't it interesting that the Lord then appeared before Annas, the high priest, and then before, then before Caiaphas. And as all of that took place, the evening hours were, of course, passing away. By now, we likely had reached the wee hours of what you and I would recognize as the morning. Isn't it interesting in that connection that some of the last things on that slide, it was at this time Peter, of course, denied the Lord thrice, and it was at this time that ultimately the high priest declared the Lord guilty of blasphemy and pronounced the sentence of death. By now we've reached, of course, the early time and Jesus was brought to appear before Pilate. All of this seems a rather easy observation and harmonizes so well with the passages that we've noted. You and I recall that Pilate could find no guilt in our Lord. In fact, he said, I find nothing worthy of death in him. However, he did turn him over to the Jews. And we do remember that after his scourging of him, and of course he proceeded to, to ultimately take him to the place of death, and Jesus was crucified. And the text says it was the third hour of the day. That brings us to nine o'clock in the morning. At this point, though, as you and I have made all those references, we now notice that he died later that afternoon, that same day, and then, of course, he was buried. And all of that has followed without any difficulty. I just have one question. What day of the week was it? What day did they celebrate the Passover? That was apparently the start of the day on which Jesus died later that same day. They started at sundown, and then over the course of what you and I would call the evening, those dark hours passed on by, when the morning came, Jesus hang was, was nailed on a cross, and then He died that same afternoon. But what day of the week was it? The person who wrote the question was very much on target in saying that the vast majority of those I've ever considered make the claim that it was Friday. That it was Friday. And so on the slide, you may notice none other than Guy Woods declared it was Friday. None other than J.W. McGarvey declared it was Friday. None other than H. Leo Bowles in the Gospel Advocate Commentary said it was Friday. Not only that, R.C.H. Linsky, one of the most noted commentators, also declared Friday. Finally, none other than Albert Barnes, and the list could go on and on. But at this point, may I at least ask for the consideration of the evening. It certainly appears to me that there is at least good reason to ponder Thursday. 
let's see if we can put some meat to that skeleton. What does the Bible say that might lead us to ponder that maybe it was Thursday instead of Friday? As you and I begin that discussion, could we begin by observing the Lord's resurrection and what was said about it, just to solidify in our thinking something about the chronology? First of all, we know that the Lord arose early on the first day of the week, the very statements of John 20, verses 1 and following. So you and I remember that the ladies, the women, came to the tomb very early in the morning. Again, that's in Mark's as well as in Luke's gospel account. But it should be interesting to observe those same accounts also tell us the Sabbath had now passed. Now, given the Sabbath as a reference to the seventh day, that's what the word means, that means we've arrived at that day you and I would call Sunday, the day we would recognize as the first day of the week. But with that in mind, point number two would then readily follow as this. There's one of the descriptions that the Lord Himself made that might well be a useful thing to consider as it touches this particular subject this evening. Do you recall that there was a time when in Matthew chapter 12 that there was a discussion in which Jesus made this presentation that just as surely as Jonah was three days and three nights in the, in the belly of the great fish, so too he, the Son of Man, would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the Lord was rather specific, wasn't He? He said three days and three nights. Now, if indeed He made reference, and if we're to take that in some semblance that it would seem connected to what was involved, it would lead us to some of the conclusions you'll notice at the bottom of that slide and on the slide that is now to follow it. Jesus testified He would rise the third day, Matthew 16, 21. He furthermore declared in Luke 18, verse 33, again, it would be the third day. So we understand there's some way of counting that would make it reasonable to appreciate the third day was the correct day on which He arose. In addition to that, you and I would now be in a position to note that in likely your day and time as well as mine, we would tend to think of three days and three nights as being 72 hours. That's three full 24-hour days. We should be precautious, though, because the Bible rarely makes direct references to time spans using the modern way of thinking. It's always done somewhat differently. Again, as it relates to the third day, or on the third day, or something like that. In fact, as this next slide will highlight, you and I recall that the book of Esther is perhaps a key one that brings that before us. When Esther was making the statement that she made in Esther 4.16, she again needed to go in before the king. And she knew that was a rather momentous time, for if the king did not extend the scepter to her, she could be killed. You didn't go in before the king uninvited. And yet she made the decree, please pray for me. And on the third day, I will go in before the king. And so as they fasted and prayed, we are given two de distinct references to that time, and, and they are not the same, and yet they highlight to the third day. So you and I again would say, we shouldn't think of it as exactly 72 hours. And something rather similar to that happens in the days of Joseph in Genesis 42. But I might come to the next observation just by way of counting as you and I would do it. If the Lord died at 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon, 
as again many seemingly suppose that he did. And if he arose shortly before daybreak on Sunday morning, that means if you just count by number of hours, he was only in the tomb about 38 hours. There'd be one full day from Friday afternoon to Saturday afternoon, and then about 12 more hours and slightly more. And again, that would bring us to about 38 hours. And yet that appears in the mind of many to be a representation of three days and three nights, for that's what the Lord said in terms of the amount of time he would actually be in the tomb. Now may I ask this, if he died at 3 o'clock on Thursday afternoon, then obviously you add about 24 hours to that total, bringing you to roughly 62 hours total. Now our issue is not necessarily that the Bible would directly hearken unto our common way of counting time, but which one seemingly at least corresponds to some of the observations we might make about what the Bible does say and the language which it does use. It is with that in mind that the next slide brings us to this. Remember, we began the count on that with the observation of the Passover. Jesus gathered with His apostles to celebrate the Passover. If we by some means could determine what day of the week that was, then that would clearly be the same day on which He was crucified. Well, you'll notice on that slide, Jesus is said to be our Passover in 1 Corinthians 5-7. We have no doubt that His occurrence, His offering of Himself took place at that season of the Passover. Now, based on the Old Testament, that, of course, was the first month of the Hebrew calendar. God told them especially, this will be the first month to you of the year. And hence, God changed their calendar at that time, according to the words of Exodus 12, verses 1 and following. But that next observation is this one. When it came to the Passover occurrence and the offering of that Passover in that first month, when did it occur? Thankfully, again, we aren't left in any wonderment on that. God had told them to take up a lamb on the tenth day of the month, to keep that lamb up, and then on the fourteenth day of that first month, they are to slay that lamb. God told them again to do it at even. So it would be the beginning of the day corresponded to the fourteenth day of the first month of the Hebrew year. Now with that noted, we then have at least a clue that helps motivate us and prompt us into the following. First of all, it might be wise to remember that since we're now talking about the 14th day of the month, just like in our common calendar today, that day didn't fall on the same day of the week every year. Just like today, the 4th of July doesn't fall on the same day of the week every year. One year it might be on a Monday, the next year it'll be on a Tuesday, the next year perhaps on a Wednesday. And you and I know it will slide forward one day each year in the week, except on those years that are leap years, and for us it'll slide forward two days. But again, the point is that day doesn't fall on the Sunday of the week each year, and so it was with the Passover. For the Jews, the Passover might fall on what you and I would call a Monday, but it might have fallen on what we might call a Friday. You get the idea. You'll notice then about the middle of that slide, there's something else to be noted about the occurrence of the Passover. You might remember the Passover was to occur on the 14th day of the first month. And beginning the very next day was a feast, 
a seven-day feast that God called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they were to celebrate then this feast for seven days on the 15th through the 21st day of the first month of the year. So at this point, keep in mind how special that period of eight days would have been. Numbering from the day of the Passover until the final day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Jews had various sacrifices to be made, and they had various observances to be done. The book of Numbers has much to say, of course, about that. But you and I might remember this. The first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a day that God expressly said was to be a day of no work. None. Now that same thing was said about the Sabbath. The Jews were not to work on the Sabbath. But they also were not to work on the first day and also the last day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Both were days of holy convocation. Both were days of no servile work. Both were days, you see, that they were to refrain from doing those kinds of activities. That would be common or ordinary work. I say all of that to say this. What would happen... If the first day of unleavened bread were to fall on the day before the Sabbath, that would then be two consecutive days of no work. The Sabbath would be one, but the Feast of Unleavened Bread would also be one, and thus there would be two consecutive days in which there would be no work, according to the command of God. I wonder, in the year that Jesus died... You and I know the Sabbath has reference, of course, to the seventh day, what you and I would call Saturday. But what was the day for the Passover? Well, you'll notice at the very bottom, I invite you to consider a calendar. And so I'm going to show you a calendar for the first month of the Hebrew year in the year Jesus died. Now, this is the month Nisan, is the way the Bible often refers to it. And you'll notice that it's the year 3790 according to the way the Hebrews date things. With that said, you'll begin to notice then the 14th day of the month fell, as you can I can appreciate, on Wednesday. Now at that point in time, notice then that what would have begun to be the case was as you arrive at what we would call sundown on that day, you would thus begin a new day. It would be the time to celebrate the Passover. Now, keeping thought about that, you'll also notice the following. Given that observation of its occurrence that day, let's slide back to the previous slide, make a few additional comments, and revisit this one, and see if we can put some of those matters together. Because the possibility that I mentioned a moment ago appears to be the very one that the inspired writer highlighted in John 19, verse number 31. Greg read this for us just a moment ago, and let me turn your attention back to it as I again read John 19.31 with an idea toward attaching it to the comments that you and I just noted. It says, The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation. Preparation for what? Preparation for the Sabbath, however many there would have been. That the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day. Now, you keep in mind that this reference to the bodies not being on the cross, that too is highlighted in a characteristic of the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 21, it was expressly stated that no body was to remain on the cross past sundown. 
And so, with the additional highlighted thought that the Sabbath or Sabbaths were now approaching, they hastened, you see, the death of those that were on the cross, that is the two thieves and Jesus. But you and I continue the verse parenthetically this way. For that Sabbath day was in high day. I wonder what John meant by this, that that Sabbath day was in high day. The reference to a high day appears to be a reference to the appreciation of this double occurrences about there being no work done. That is to say, it was an especially elongated time in which there was to be no work done. Now again, based on the calendar, as you and I just noted it, and we'll highlight that again in a moment, that would have been exactly the case here. That is to say, it would have fallen two consecutive in essence, Sabbath-like days, one that was actually the Sabbath, the other that was the, feast, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And if those occurred again back to back, there would have been two consecutive days of no work and two consecutive occurrences in which some of the restrictions concerning those matters would have been the case. At that point, as you close that slide, I again ask you to note again the calendar. Let's revisit the calendar now like this. So beginning again at sundown on that day that's regarded as the 14th, that would have been the day the Passover was to be observed. The Passover lamb would have been brought up on the 10th, which for us, again, oddly enough, would have fallen on the Sabbath. So notice, under the characteristic of God's commandment, they actually had to do some work taking up that lamb on that Sabbath day. Remember how often the Jews fussed with the Lord about claiming that He worked in some ways on the Sabbath? How He healed many times on the Sabbath and they argued with Him that it was unlawful to do that. And yet they must have taken up their lamb on the previous Sabbath in such a way they could thus slaughter it at the right time the next week. Somewhat interesting to observe how one can often choose the approach to take of things in a rather hypocritical fashion, isn't it? But going back to the Sabbath... On that tenth, you'll notice then on the evening, or that is to say, what for them was the beginning of the day on the fourteenth. They thus would have slaughtered that lamb and made ready and partaken of it shortly after sundown that day. They did that again at the very beginning of that day. And that being said, if we're right about that, then that would of course thus have meant that Jesus died that same day. So for us, that would have been rather early in the afternoon on Thursday. Because again, for us, we would have regarded it as the beginning of the day, but that would have occurred after sundown on Wednesday. Notice that being said, with the counting beginning at the sundown like that, that would have exactly have meant that the beginning of the Sabbath would have fallen exactly at a time wherein the two would have fallen one after the other one. And that being said, it would have exactly corresponded to this dual or double days, back to back, with no work to be done. No wonder it was said to be in high day. No wonder it was described using that kind of language. But that is at all that you and I might note for some other things could also be highlighted such as this. Given that the beginning of the day occurred in exactly that fashion, something rather interesting is to be noted as you give thought to the wording of Matthew 28. 
And I've asked you to notice at the bottom, it says, in the end of the Sabbath. Somewhat interestingly enough, that word is plural. That is to say, it literally reads, in the end of the Sabbaths. Now, is, if that's a reference to, again, a, a, a double appreciation, or at least two days it had Sabbath-like characteristics. We know there was but one Sabbath. But if there was the first day of unleavened bread, that was also a day of no work, and it fell directly the day before that day, or that day after that day, I should say, then you can understand why that would have been regarded as plural. Otherwise, what easy way is there to appreciate the plurality of that word? Now, that, is, that might well also be noted this way. The first day of unleavened bread as it occurred at that time, brings me to this next slide as well, in which we can at least appreciate this one. That next slide is also one that takes us back to John chapter 18. Because there's a passage that no doubt many of those commentators would be quick to reference. Let's note the way in which it appears in John 18, verse number 28. Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment, and it was early. And they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Now the way in which that appears leads us to believe then that there were some who had not yet eaten the Passover, despite the fact Jesus kept it the previous night. How could that be? Do you see the idea? There were some Jews who had not yet partaken of the Passover despite the fact we've just stated Jesus partook of it the previous evening. Well, that understanding might well be seen the following way as I've asked you to notice on that slide. Some Jews, as history records, had begun to combine the first day of unleavened bread with the Passover. That is to say, they basically celebrated one event... And as they did that, again, God had distinguished them. There was the Passover followed by the first day of unleavened bread, and they were distinct. But sadly, some Jews over the course of the centuries had begun to combine or put them or synthesize them. We might ask what authority they had for doing that. I don't find any in the Old Testament. I realize in the days of Nehemiah and in the days of Ezra, there were certainly some statements about particulars regarding that, but I find no references to God's approval for combining things. And in fact, as you'll notice on that slide, in Ezekiel 45, verse 21, it seems as if there was even a reference by Ezekiel's day. Some of them had begun to combine them. Our Lord appears not to have done so. And you and I can understand why, again, there appears to be no biblical authority for combining them. They were to be appreciated as, as distinct and appreciated as separate. So putting those matters together, namely that of the calendar, as well as some of these additional observations about the wording and otherwise the descriptions, would lead us then to notice that the Lord, it would appear, was crucified on Thursday afternoon, or at least that's the time He died. He was nailed on the cross on Thursday morning at 9 a.m., that meant that the three days and three nights to which the Lord referred would have meant He spent about 62 hours, His body did in the tomb, and meant that His spirit was about 62 hours, as you and I would reckon it, 
in that Hadean realm. And that's the very reference, at least in terms of place, that Peter made on the day of Pentecost. Remember, thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. And so the Lord's Spirit was at least for some time in that location and then on that Sunday morning. By the power of God, Romans 1 verse 4, He was resurrected. His Spirit came out of that Hadean realm, infused a body that was prepared for Him, and in that way, you and I recognize the reality and the beauty of that resurrection. As we close that particular slide, isn't it interesting that one of the thoughts then you and I can see is how later in this same chapter, John chapter 19, there are some references in verse 42 to statements about the nature again of the Lord's resurrection in terms of the events surrounding it. One by one, as we've looked at some of these features, it does make us ponder. So many look upon a singular occurrence of the Sabbath and His crucifixion the previous day is virtually guaranteeing that it was on a Friday. But we have just basically made the observation that if the first day of unleavened bread were to fall in a way consistent with the Passover and in a way consistent with the Sabbath, it could easily have been the case. In fact, this would have occurred roughly every three years. Could it have occurred the year Jesus died? According to the calendar, it exactly did that year. It makes one ponder and in fact lean somewhat strongly to the strong possibility of a Thursday afternoon death of our Lord. Now the last slide that I will invite you to consider is merely a conclusion one. By way of conclusion, at least I've offered you the thoughts which lead me to strongly think that it was a Thursday afternoon death for our Lord. We've looked at those matters based primarily on some of the occurrences of the calendar and some of the features connected to the days of the week and the circumstances connected to the first day of unleavened bread. As we close this particular lesson, I hope it's been a, a reminder of the revelation in the Bible. How that the things, even as what some would call minor, and connected to chronology, can still be a faith-building exercise. It is a rather revealing thing to see that calendar exactly correspondent to some of the things the Old Testament revealed and to some of the possibilities of the new that seems to harmonize with other phrases like the high day of John 19.31. One last thing, and the lesson will be yours. We noted earlier that the word preparation was used. Doesn't that still seem like a very good word to use for the Jews if they were not to work for two consecutive days? it would have been then a strong reason to make adequate preparation so that things were taken care of as needed, not for one day, but for two. And now, with all that said, let's offer the Lord's invitation. The day of the week our Lord died, I wouldn't claim that to be a matter of urgent salvation in the sense that we almost agree on it. I've offered you my thought for Thursday. You may still strongly feel as if Friday is the better choice. I would simply say that the Word of God is our standard. And the Word of God, as it reveals these things, maybe there's opportunity for us to have discussion and consideration and maybe even a dialogue about more carefully appreciating and we might all reach the same conclusion about the particular day of the week. I've already mentioned many commentators 
virtually every one I was able to consult all seemingly feel it was Friday. I happen to think it was Thursday. And I think there's good reason for that being a very strong possibility. But tonight, the Lord's invitation still stands as supreme in light of what took place that day. Our Lord died. He hung for very much six hours on that cross, shed innocent blood that you and I might have the forgiveness of sin. Aren't we so thankful for that event? Without doubt, the single darkest event, from the human standpoint at least, in the history of the world. And yet you and I today can still bask in what it makes possible, the blessed light of cleansing and sanctification. This night, tonight, it could be someone in this assembly, maybe upon reflection of the Lord's death and remembering that it was for you and for me, maybe you've come to realize that you need to make some changes. You need to repent. You need to come rushing to the side of the Lord. Don't you know He'll be warmly in a position to receive you? And tonight, if we could do that, Brother Cale has chosen the song of invitation, this hymn of encouragement, and we'd like to use this as an opportune and convenient time to invite anyone to come, and we would be delighted to pray for your encouragement, to pray for your strength. It may not be any particular sin on your mind, but you just need some strength to face matters that's coming up upon you this week. If you would like us to pray on that way, we'd be happy to do that. That's a Christian's prerogative. Quite frankly, it's a blessing. If, however, you would wish to confess error, we'd be delighted to encourage you in that way as well. This particular sermon has been a reminder that Jesus did die for us. And if we could be of some assistance in allowing you to make attachment to faithfulness to Him, won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.